0: Whatever chippery mood you're in today, you can just leave it behind. We begin the five plagues of destruction. Uh, Happy Father's Day. Wouldn't have it any other way. So we're in week three of our series in the life of Moses, in particular the book of Exodus. And briefly, before we get started with today's text, which will be covering the first six of the ten plagues, I want to briefly review what we introduced on week one, what I called sort of the Egyptian cinematic universe, or the Exodus cinematic universe. And I use the word cinematic universe, even though it's not a movie, because that's something culturally we can relate to. We have movies that have cinematic universes. So there's a Marvel cinematic universe, and in that universe, there's rules. And when you're watching those movies, you sort of... Know and understand those rules, and you know if, like, this sound comes on, like this part of the soundtrack, a good guy is about to enter. Or if you know this 10 second audio clip comes in, a bad guy is about to enter. Or, like, in Star Wars, if someone were to pull out a lightsaber, you know they are most likely a Jedi. Or if it's a red lightsaber, you know they're a Sith. You know, those are the rules that sort of govern those cinematic universes. Now, Exodus has a universe and rules that govern it, and it's the culture and the background and particularly the worldview of Egypt. And so we have to understand that if we're going to get all that Exodus is trying to tell us. So a little bit of what I introduced two weeks ago and then a little bit more information. If you were here, you remember this. This is a picture of the Pharaoh. And in the Egyptian world, Pharaoh is the image of God. Unlike Christianity, where all people, male and female, are made in the image of God, in Egyptian thought, the Pharaoh is the only divine image of God. There's no one else. He speaks for the gods, he stands in place of the gods. Sometimes he's called the son of Amnu-Ra. Amnu-Ra is the chief Egyptian god over the entire Egyptian pantheon. So he is the image And what this picture is trying to communicate is that when you see Pharaoh, you see Amnu-Ra. Amnu-Ra, the chief god, is depicted as a ram and underneath him is the Pharaoh. And it's this idea. If you wanna see what Amnu-Ra is like, you look to Pharaoh. If you see Pharaoh, you see an embodiment of the gods. Additionally, they wouldn't just have one or two of these images out in the open. This is from an area called Karnak, before a temple, you would have literally thousands of these images, all with Amnu-Ra and Pharaoh intricately connected. So if you want to send a message about who Pharaoh actually is, you put it in stone a thousand times over. It's a way to say to the people of Egypt, make no mistake about it, Pharaoh is not just an ordinary man. There was also sacred architecture in Egypt, and this is something that's sort of foreign to us as modern people, we don't do sacred architecture. I joked around a couple weeks ago. Um, it's not as if our building, when we, when we thought it up, that the angles like, are supposed to mirror the, the original temple in Jerusalem, and there's three steps for the Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't do that as modern people. But ancient people did this all of the time, everywhere. There's sacred architecture and the buildings and how they are put up are meant to communicate something. In this case, this is an entrance before a temple. And this type of entrance is called a pylon, P-Y-L-O-N, and there's, there's tons of these throughout Egypt. It's a sacred entrance. And the architecture is mirrored after the Egyptian hieroglyphic, achet, which is the Egyptian hieroglyphic for the horizon. And if you were to see the hieroglyphic, you would see two sort of mountains with a gap in between them, so the sun could rise between the two mountains. So in this, there's two structures on the left and the right and a gap in between, just like the hieroglyphic. And it's trying to say that this now represents the horizon. You have a mountain on the left and on the right, and in between is where the sun were to rise. There were sacred rituals done at this pylon, and the rituals mimicked and mirror what was taking place sort of in the natural world. And what it's trying to say is that what is done in this temple is responsible for maintaining order out there. What is done in this temple makes the sun rise and makes the sun set. This is why it's the horizon. And there's a key word here, ma'at. Ma'at is the Egyptian word for order. When the priest, in the name of Pharaoh, do ma'at, order is done in the temple, and then it's pushed out into the natural world. In other words, it's not just some rituals or religious activity taking place in these sacred spaces. If you don't do the rituals, if you don't do the ceremonies, if you don't do the sacred activity, ma'at will come undone. And it's not just like it comes undone in the temple. Literally, the created order out there will come undone. Pharaoh's job is to lead the priest, he is the high priest, in keeping and maintaining ma'at for the world. And if he doesn't do his job right, then the very cosmos come undone. This is a picture of the Pharaoh, and there's three important symbols here. On the top is a serpent on his head. Uh, in his hands is a shepherd's staff or a shepherd's crook and something you call a, a, a flail. The serpent represents divine authority. That means he is the highest power in all of Egypt. The shepherd's crook is a shepherd's staff, would represent the fact that he is the, the ruler, he is the shepherd, and everyone else they're just sheep. He gives life, he can give death, he can protect, he can feed, he not feed, he's in charge. The other device, the flail, probably has a connection with agriculture, meaning Pharaoh is the one who provides and feeds for his people. So everywhere you look in Egypt, everything has symbolic meaning and symbolic value, you can't escape it. Pharaoh is supposed to be the divine embodiment of the gods. And this is important because someone, Moses, is going to be sent. And like Pharaoh, he is going to stand in place of his God. So when you see Pharaoh, you're supposed to see the divine embodiment and the representative. And when you see Moses, according to the logic of Exodus, it's as if you're seeing an embodiment of God. Now, we're Christians, so we don't believe human beings are God or that God ever turns people into gods. But literally, I want you to know that the way this story is working is that this is supposed to be the gods of Egypt versus the God of Israel, and you see that in Moses and Pharaoh. Look at this. This is a crazy verse. This is, this is God talking. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be my prophet, your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell, your, tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. So this is powerful symbolism here. Egyptian gods embodied in Pharaoh. The God of Israel makes Moses like God, and he has a prophet named Aaron. Now, make no mistake about it, Moses is not God, it's not, it's not even close. But they are symbolically functioning in place of who they represent. Now, we'll pick up into the story and begin the plagues. What have we covered so far? The people of Israel have been enslaved. God hears their cries. He chooses a guy named Moses to go and be the deliverer. He tells Moses his divine name. This was last week. In Hebrew, the personal name of God is Yahweh represented by four Hebrew letters Yod He Vave. It's the name that's associated with I am that I am. So now Moses knows the name of God and he's coming in that name to tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. Let's get in. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Interesting, right? What's the staff? There's tons of animals that staff can turn into. It's going to turn into a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff, was, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said." All right, a few things going on here. First, there's these characters that are introduced. They're called the magicians, the sorcerers, people who practice the secret arts of Egypt. In Hebrew, they're called the hartumim. And the hartumim are not, this is where the kind of English translation can be misleading, calls them magicians. And that's a fine term, but when we think of magicians as modern people, what do we think of? What's a magician? Someone who does tricks like, if I'm going to be a magician, hey, I'm going to pull a chihuahua out of a hat right here. Boom. What up, everybody? A better translation is a technical term called lector priests, And the lector priests are people who are responsible for the ceremonies and the rituals that maintain ma'at. They're the priests, the scribes, the religious establishment. And they are apparently able to replicate the miracle now a question arises are they in this story truly able to replicate the miracle or is it more like a magician's trick because people have been turning snakes into rods for thousands of years you can see this done today in some places there's there's tricks there's there's certain parts on a cobra that you could squeeze in a certain way and they freeze up and there's all kinds of weird ways you could accomplish this without having some like truly supernatural movement. So the question that gets introduced to us, are the Hartumim, the priest of Pharaoh, doing tricks, or is there something actually occurring? Now for this, at this point in the story, all you need to know is that God goes, okay, you did a trick. Well... Watch my serpent. It's going to eat your, your, your two snakes up. It's powerful. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. doesn't want to let the people of Israel go. And so this sets in motion 10 plagues that are going to f- attempt to force Pharaoh's hand to let the Israelite slaves go free. Now, when you look at the plagues... If you're like me, when you first saw them, or maybe you first watched the Ten Commandments movies, they seem kind of random. You know what I mean? It's, it's like God's up there, and he's going, these people better let my people go. What should I do now? Yeah, let's throw some frogs at them. Yeah, see, throw some frogs at them. You know, it's like, it's like just throw a bunch of frogs at people? Like that's, what kind of plague is that? Yes, yeah, frogs don't work. Throw some, let's throw some bugs at them, some biting bugs to keep them up at night. It's weird. It's bizarre. There is a rhyme and a reason to the plagues. And again, you have to understand that Egyptian cinematic universe, the Egyptian worldview. God tells us his reason in Exodus 12. What is his purpose in doing all of this? He says, on all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord we've talked about this a couple weeks ago are there real gods in egypt because sometimes the bible will communicate in ways that say oh you know those those gods that people worship those are those are false gods everyone knows they're just idols don't worry about it they're just they're just stones and, and bricks and wood they're not they're not real entities but sometimes the bible will say things like oh no don't you know that that idol is not real But there is a, and this is difficult to translate as well, a demonic presence behind it. Oftentimes the word that's used in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word shed, and sometimes it's translated demon, but sometimes it's just a spirit that accepts worship from humans. So some would say that there is actually some type of evil supernatural spirit or being that's behind these evil workings you ever see something like a country a nation empire commit such atrocious things against innocent people that you you ask yourself how in the world could a human being be driven to say systematically torture for fun children what 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 does that Now the Bible doesn't spell it out completely, but it seems to indicate that there are more forces in the world at work than just mere human activity. This is something hard for modern people to believe, but this was an assumed reality of most people in most places in most times. So for the story, whatever you think about what's going on, in Exodus it says, hey look, I'm coming to take out There's so much, so much going on here. So, so first, Pharaoh's heart's hard, and he doesn't want to let the people go. And then it says he's going somewhere at a certain time of the day. What what's, time is it? The morning. Where is he going? To the Nile. Why? We don't know with certainty, but it is possible that maybe this is a morning ritual to worship the God of the Nile. Maybe. One of the things pharaohs did was they would measure the rise of the Nile, because the rising of the Nile is what gives life to all of Egypt. It's wrapped up in the fertility gods. Either way, there's some things going on that's trying to get the reader to think about these things. They include these details for a reason. Or maybe it's because God tells Moses to bring accusation against pharaoh at the very place our story started. Convict Pharaoh in the very place of his sin. Remember from a few weeks ago, Pharaoh gave the command to throw all the baby male children into the Nile. So it's at the very place of sin that God calls Moses to confront. Now you have to picture something else in your head and you really have to picture this. So Pharaoh's walking down to the Nile Pharaoh carries the shepherd's crook, the staff. He is the image of God on earth, the embodiment of the will of the Egyptian pantheon. You do not challenge Pharaoh. You see Pharaoh, the Nile, Egypt, in all of his glory, and then you see Moses. What does he come with? He comes with his, a shepherd's staff. And he says, in the name of the God of the slaves, let my people go. So you see the image. Remember, Pharaoh versus Moses, this is it. Who holds the real shepherd's staff? Who's in charge? Whose gods are most powerful? The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the slaves sent me to you, the most powerful man on earth. You better let the people go or else. Now, you, people often get mad at biblical characters for not being super obedient, as if you would be super obedient in these situations. But you've got to understand, Moses, do you know what, if you go confront Pharaoh, it's not like our culture, you can slander the president and nothing will happen to you. Except tons of people online will give you likes and tons of people will dislike it. <laughs> Pharaoh could have you tortured and killed. You don't go, I mean, this is courage. I come in the name of the God of the slaves, let my people go. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. When you see the Lord capitalized like this, I am Yahweh. Not just any old God, I'm not one of the god, I'm not just a spirit, I'm not just a, a shed like a, a spirit who accepts worship. I am the one true God of God's King of Kings. I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now, the question is. If Yahweh is to turn the, the Nile River into blood, he has to overcome somebody because the Egyptians believed that the Nile was the bloodstream of the god Osiris and that the Nile itself was the embodiment of the god Happy or Hapi. So it's not just in our minds like God... See, if we were to do a miracle... In our worldview, it'd be, oh, God broke the laws of nature and turned the water into wine or blood. But in the Egyptian worldview, it's not just breaking the laws of nature, because who upholds those very laws? Who brings Ma'at to the Nile? The gods do. And the particular god that brought Ma'at to the Nile is this guy Happy, Happy often depicted as a dude with a beard with breast and a pregnant belly you say well that's weird well the Nile is the river that gives life and fertility to all of Egypt it's the source of life and so even though this God is a man it's depicted with fertility images so the question is who's more powerful the God of the Nile or the God of the slaves Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up his staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt, that's the hard to mean again, the Egyptians, the, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now back to the heart to meme, these priests. They're able to replicate this miracle and again the question is are they is there some real evil supernatural activity occurring or are they just doing tricks you know because maybe they brought they brought a big gallon of of clean water that they dug up through a well and then they're like so you may know the god of the nile is before us close your eyes and they drop some red drops in there so i was like now before you know the power of happy go away moses don't know. Is it a trick, or is there something really occurring? One of the little side notes, and we have to go slow through these texts, otherwise you'll miss this, but the people still find water, right? Where are they getting water from? They're having to dig it up. What that might be telling the reader. The Egyptians are forced to find water sustenance from a different source. And the previous source was associated with a God. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him. And Why does he go back? Because Pharaoh's heart's going to be hardened all throughout these, these plagues. That'll be a theme. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into, your houses of, into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. It's no joke. This is frogs everywhere. Now, for me, I personally like frog legs. I've gone frogging. Anyone in here gone frogging? Okay, frogging is awesome. There's different ways to do it, but one of the best ways is real late at night with a bright flashlight, you know? You, you stun it. You know, RJ's, I heard our RJ Campos laugh. He knows, I've gone frogging with RJ. Then you get them and you batter up them legs. Fry them? Delicious. So for me, I'm going, they jumped into the ovens. Well, that's a good start. Good job, guys. It's exactly what I was thinking. Now, this one I joked earlier because it kind of seems random, but you got to understand the Egyptian worldview. Something going on here. There is a goddess associated with frogs. The goddess Heket is always depicted with the frog head. She is another goddess of fertility. She's particularly associated with birth and life and pregnancy. And so in the second plague, you get this annoying frog plague as if to say the god of the frogs cannot maintain ma'at and another reason might be this how does our story begin with the lives of innocent children not being protected and then the goddess of childbirth and pregnancy is shown to be impotent and powerless before the god of the slaves so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians, the Hartu did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So again, they're still able to do it. And again, the same question comes up. Are these guys doing tricks, or is there something real going on? Because this one would probably be like easy, right? You just get a gunny sack or something with a bunch of frogs in it, and say, Moses, we could do the frog thing too. Close your eyes so that you may know Hecate is queen. And then he unleash a bunch of frogs. We did it. So, are they magicians? They're tricksters? Or, again, is there something more going on? Plague number three. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. So, Frogs. And then we get some type of We don't know exactly what that was like. And we don't know exactly which god or goddess it was associated with because there's not necessarily a direct one-to-one correspondence every single time. But it's possible, since the directions were to strike the earth, and then the gnats came up, that this may be attack on the god of the earth, the god of the ground, Geb. And so it's another way of saying, oh, normally there's a natural order to the ground, to the earth. That's maintained, that ma'at is controlled by a certain deity. Aaron, strike it with your staff and watch the chaos come out. Now, this is fascinating here. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Plague number three, the meme, they can't replicate the miracle. Now, again, we're not there, but in my mind, out of all those tricks, this one's the easiest to replicate. Nats are real tiny, man. You just stuff them behind. Hello, Moses. Rah! So why is this the place where the hartu meme's ability to replicate the miracle ceased? Why is it here? Now we can't be certain. But there's some interesting information that's given to us by Herodotus, a historian 2500 years ago. And he's writing on he's writing the history kind of of everything he could write on at the time, and he tells us about the hartu of Egypt. Tells us a number of things. He says they were extremely focused on cleanse, cleanliness and being ritualistically pure or holy. He says the, the Hartu meme, they bathe twice in the day and twice at night. They only drink from bronze cups, which they wash continually to make sure they're the, the, the best of the best. They wear minimal, pure white linen clothes. And then he says, the hartumim of Egypt are unlike other priests of different cultures because the hartumim shave their entire body every other day. No hair. And then some of the depictions of the hartumim you see them, they're, they're, they're bald. They shave off all their hair, all of it. And the reason Herodotus says they do this is... He says their motivation is driven by the fact that they don't want anything foul, anything unclean, any bug or gnat or creature to be hidden away in any hair. They want to be able to wash and see their entire body to maintain ritual purity. So if bugs or anything foul would make the priest ritualistically unclean, what does the plague of the gnats do? Now, this is where it kind of gets creepy, okay. So, is it because the priests go, we're unclean, so we're not going to practice any of these ceremonies or rituals, therefore, we can't copy the miracle? Or is it because they are now ritually, ritualistic, unclean, I'm not gonna say that word anymore. I don't ever have trouble with that word, but right now I am. Is it because they are now unclean that in performing their rituals and secret arts, the spirits, the demonic powers are no longer assisting them? Text doesn't say. You've got to figure those. That's for you to decide. But what you need to know is this. At this point, the heart to mean cannot replicate the miracle. And they say, This is the finger of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. As he goes out to the water... And say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your house. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Now the pattern is this should be attacking some type of God. And that pattern continues, but this is the one that's most difficult to identify, one, because the word flies here is hard to translate. Some people think it means a flying beetle, a, a dung beetle. Some people think it means like just like normal, typical Egyptian house fly, or there's these biting fly bugs that are over there. So no one really knows exactly how to translate that word. And then there's a number of gods that it could be possibly associated with. So we don't know precisely what exactly is going on in this plague, but one possible candidate is Kefre, because Kefre is always depicted as having the head of a flying beetle. So again, it's attacking some type of deity, god or goddess in the Egyptian pantheon and saying they cannot maintain ma'at. But on some of the plagues we can't be certain with precision on exactly what's going on because we're divorced from the culture and a lot of the details. Needless to say, um, there's a pattern. Plague happens. Pharaoh doesn't change his heart. He maintains and is persistent on enslaving the people of Israel. So another plague is introduced. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So in this case, this one is a little bit more direct. There are two massive, powerful gods in Egypt that are associated with the livestock and the cattle. On the left is the goddess Hathor, who's always depicted with the bull horns. And on the right, Hapis, the Hapis bull. Um, and these, the, the bull, Hapis, is said to literally inseminate the land of Egypt every year. He is the god that brings fertility to the land. So, When Yahweh strikes down the cattle, it's as if he's saying, where is the power of Hathor? Where is the power of Hapas? They are impotent to stand against the one true God of the world. And the last plague we'll cover today. It's the last one because it closes this section well. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot and kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot and killed and stood before Pharaoh's and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out and sores on man and beast. Now, if your body was breaking out with boils or some sickness... There were gods and goddesses in Egypt that you would go to to pray for healing. One of them is Sekhmet, the lion goddess. Another one might have been Isis, these gods of healing who could restore your skin. But this plague continues throughout the land, and it's clearly demonstrated the gods of Egypt are incapable of standing against Yahweh, the god of the slaves. But then this last line, this is fascinating again just like Plague 3. And the Khartoumim, the magicians, could not stand before Moses. Who is Moses like? Who is Moses standing in place of? What is the text trying to get you to see? And the Khartoumim could not stand before Moses, Yahweh's representative, because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and all of Egypt. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them and the Lord ha- as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, this is powerful. The to me, the priest, the ones who do the ceremonies, the rites and the rituals, they can no longer even stand. And they can't stand before Moses. They are unclean. They cannot perform their priestly duties. In the Egyptian world view, What occurs when the priest who operate in the name of Pharaoh cannot do those rites and rituals? Ma'at cannot be maintained. Chaos is breaking forth in the land. Even more so, we are modern people. So you have to understand something. When I say the priests can't perform their religious duty. Our worldview already separates and has categories. There's religious life, secular life, civil life. No, no, no. In the Egyptian worldview, all is religious life, and religious life is all. So when the priests cannot perform these acts, the very fabric that holds their reality together, together, ma'at, is becoming undone. Again, we separate things. We have you know, separation of church and state. God doesn't appoint a new king. We elect presidents. In Egypt, Pharaoh is the image of God. He maintains ma'at, and his priests maintain it throughout the land. The priests cannot perform their sacred duties. Therefore, the very structure of Egyptian reality is becoming undone, which is sending a message to the people of Egypt. Egypt. Is a powerful message to the people of Egypt. And it's whose God is God? Earlier on, God actually says he is going to do these miracles to judge the gods of Egypt, but also that the Egyptians might know him. So there's a message here whose God is God? Who is the one true King of Kings, Lord of Lords? And if you're a normal Egyptian, you are seeing not just your religious establishment come undone, you are seeing the very structure of your world come shattering down. Ma'at is being unleashed upon the land, and Pharaoh and his priests and your gods are impotent to stop it. And so, the question for all the Egyptians and even the, the Israelites who are caught up in Egyptian worship is who's the one true God? Who has power over the Nile? Is it happy? No, no, no. Yahweh turns it to blood. Who has the power of life and death and birth and pregnancy and fertility? Is it Heket, the frog deity? No, no, no. Frog ma'at everywhere. Frog ma'at undone in chaos everywhere. Who is the god of the earth? Is it Geb? No, no, no. Look at this chaos and gnats come from that. Who's in charge of the cattle? Who's in charge of healing? Who's in charge of making the sun rise, the sun set? Egyptians, you had gods for everything, but you need to know clearly, I am Yahweh, and I've come to execute judgment upon your gods so that you, even you rebellious sinners, may know that I am Lord. And this is the powerful message of the plagues. Yeshers the can begin to pass out communion there's a message that's being displayed in these plagues. It would be abundantly clear to everyone in the land, although it might be hidden to us because of a different worldview. Now, what are some extremely practical things that come out of this sort of massively epic narrative of of plague and destruction and ma'at and order? First, and this is appropriate for communion... Did you notice that there's an increasing intensification of the plagues? God wants the Egyptians and the Hebrews to know that he's God, but people are stubborn and they refuse to worship. So does God come with the worst of the worst plagues at the beginning? No. In fact, the first plagues are pretty much just annoying. Oh, you want water? Now you have to dig for it. You know, that's a bad thing, but you're going to be fine. You'll live. Not that big of a deal. Okay, second plague. There's a bunch of frogs everywhere. Man, this is really annoying, but, you know, I've acquired a taste for these things, so they're not that bad. Then there's gnats. Then there's flying bugs. Then your cattle's destroyed. Then there's boils. So do you see this increasing intensification of the plagues? It's as if God is saying, so there's sin and rebellion and hardness of heart. I am going to be patient and merciful and bring things in your life that will try to wake you up. Now, if you're a Christian, this sounds a lot like the God you've worshipped your entire life. There's things not right in your life. And God brings things. It's like, wake up, wake up, wake up. And one of the things the Bible is clear on is that whom the Lord loves is whom the Lord disciplines. So some of you have gone on in your rebellion even though God gave you wake-up calls. And then it goes on and on and on until God says, Now I have to tear this idol out of your hand that's just sitting there clutching it. And He will bring you to your knees in tears to rip sin out of your life. But there's increasing intensification. Secondly, relating to communion, is this text forces us to ask the questions who do we belong to? Who is your God? Whom do you fear? Is it Pharaoh? Is it the Egyptian pantheon? Who are you a slave to? Because make no mistake, you may live in a free land but still be a slave to something. Are you a slave to Pharaoh, to Egyptians, to false gods? Are you a slave to sin? Or are you a slave to God, a slave to a God who gives you true freedom? That paradox is in the New Testament. So as we enter into communion, two questions. Pick one of those two. Is there sin in your life that God has been slowly saying, wake up, cut this out, wake up, cut this out, and you've increased your rebelliousness, you've increased the hardening of your heart? Because if you're a child of God, make no mistake about it, man, he's going to keep bringing those things until you cut it out. And then two, who do you belong to? Whom do you place your trust in? Do you fear the false gods of this world? Do you worship the false gods of this world? Do you place your hope in their personifications? Money, greed, lust, anger. Or have you submitted completely to the real king? Now, we're going to go on next week to cover the rest of the plagues. But even after those plagues, when God shows himself to defeat all the false gods, there is still, after the Exodus is said and done, another God that must be defeated. And this is a God, lowercase g, who's called the God of this age the prince of the power of the air, the slanderer, the accuser, the serpent of old, the dragon of revelation. And at the cross, which these elements embody, Jesus, the great I am, does battle to defeat one final God. And he does so at the cross by laying down his life to free his people, not from Egypt, from their sin. Let's stand as we take communion. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. He does this to defeat your greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And the cup has blood shed on our behalf. It's the blood of the new covenant. And Lord, as we take this, we pledge our allegiance to you to proclaim your gospel until you return. Father, may we worship you in this time of worship through music. May your son be glorified. May we acknowledge you as the only king, the only God, the only Lord of our lives.